0: I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's
1: talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod.
0: Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast.
1: Welcome back, Refiners, to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. Severed is a scene-by-scene rewatch, loaded with details, spoilers, and speculation. Refiners, it's time to once again open the file marked "Half Loop." If you remember last time, we were at the Severed elevator, chasing Helly. Mark had almost caught up to her, but Grainer was faster. Grainer is now standing at the open elevator, while Mark can only look helplessly in from one of the outer doors. Helly slowly exits the elevator. What have we got here? Grainer snatches the blue post-it from Helly's hand. When he sees what it is, he gives Helly a sneer.
0: Perhaps you better come with me. Mr. Grainer?
1: Mark is knocking on the still-locked door to the elevator room. There's a beep. Grainer has unlocked the door with a very cool handheld remote. Mark hustles in, trying to smooth things over.
0: Hey, see you found my wayward trainee appreciate your help sir as always
1: grainer fixes mark with a cold stare mark explains to grainer this is his fault mark's scrambling you can tell he knows something bad is coming he's trying to take whatever it is off heli he says he must not have gone over the data smuggling rules with his new trainee i apologize for that sir this infraction with the note is on him Grainer doesn't seem all that impressed with Mark's recent promotion. Big department chief now, Marcus. Uh, on you then. In the orientation handbook, there is a page on discipline. It specifically discusses trying to communicate with your Audi. It very clearly states all notes will be confiscated, followed by an immediate visit to the break room. Break room is written as two words with the B and R both capitalized. Since Mark has stepped in to take the blame for Helly's infraction, it sounds like Mark is the one who will be visiting the break room. Let's go. Mark glances back at Helly before following Grainer into the hallway. Oddly, Helly is just left standing there in front of the elevator as Mark and Grainer head to the break room. Let's meet the man playing Grainer. This is British actor Michael Kumpste, born in Wakefield, Yorkshire, England in 1960. He has a smiling pic on his IMDb profile. You can barely recognize him. Michael began his television career on an episode of Daytime Soap, One Life to Live, in 1989. Michael has since amassed 47 total credits on his IMDb profile. His first recurring TV role came in 1990 on the miniseries The Kennedys of Massachusetts. He appeared on 17 episodes of L.A. Law and has a number of one-off guest star appearances, primarily on police procedurals. Like many of our other Severance supporting actors, Michael has a number of Broadway and stage credits. After several twists and turns through the white hallways, Mark and Grainer arrive at a door with a small sign to the side. It says simply, break room. Grainer takes out his key card, the door opens, and Grainer waves Mark in. The cut to a reverse angle shows a darkened, narrow hallway. Grainer does not enter the narrow hall. Instead, he closes the door, locking it behind Mark. Mark is walking slowly. At the end of the darkened hallway, a door opens. Cobell is standing there as the music swells. The severance sound plays, and there is a smash cut to Mark in a restaurant. So you're a doula?
0: A midwife actually Mm -hmm.
1: we get to skip whatever ugliness any mark had to deal with there in the break room we hear a female voice off camera answering mark he said the word doula doula is a term taken from modern greek it means a birthing assistant or a labor coach without medical training the voice off camera corrects mark using the word midwife a midwife is a more skilled birthing assistant than a doula midwives actually have some medical and gynecological training midwives deliver babies for women in low-risk pregnancies wanting a natural birthing option usually outside of a hospital we cut to a smiling young lady across the table is mark on a date he's trying to make small talk but it all comes back to the midwife topic how many deliveries have you uh, seen she tells him she's seen over 300 births while working back in montana
0: are you vetting me for your sister (laughs) No, no, you seem great.
1: I'm kidding. I know. So this is a date, most likely set up by his sister. Mark's treating it like an interview for a midwife. Mark signals the waiter for a refill on his drink. The young lady, who is having a glass of wine, tries to steer the conversation back to Mark. So lumen. Yeah.
0: Like half this town.
1: And half of me. That was a joke. (laughs) Mark is getting visibly sloshed. Talking about work, he puts a thumb to his forehead and makes a clicking sound with his mouth to indicate the severance switch. His date is fascinated. Everyone seems to know about the severance procedure, but very few people seem to have actually met a severed worker. Or maybe they've met one, but they didn't have a chance to talk to them about it. She asks him many of the same questions we've already heard. He doesn't know who he works with. He can't sneak in a note. She brings up family.
0: You could have a girlfriend at Lumen and not know it. And if you met someone out here, you wouldn't know it in there. Like you could get married and have kids and just forget they exist for eight hours every day for your whole life. That doesn't mess with your
1: head. Mark says for some people, checking out is the point. It's certainly the point of Mark Severance's decision, but he doesn't mention that. In the background of this restaurant scene, we can hear Billie Holiday singing, I'll Be Seeing You. This song was originally published in 1938, where it was included as part of a failed Broadway musical. The show went away after only 15 performances, but this song remained. Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, and Billie Holiday all released versions of this one in 1944. Fun fact about Ms. Holliday's version, NASA sent this song to the Opportunity rover on Mars just before its mission ended in 2019.
0: I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places This heart of mine embraces
1: all
0: day through.
1: There's a cut. The conversation continues. They are now walking out on the streets of Kier.
0: So, as a local, this just feels like a reasonable temperature, too.
1: Mark mentions he's actually from Gans. Hammered Mark says, She should be used to it. Isn't Minnesota cold?
0: Yes, Minnesota was very cold the one time I visited from my home in Montana.
1: Oops, the booze is creating some confusion in Mark's mind. Mark said he was from Gans. In the closed captioning, they spell it G-A-N-Z. There is a Gans, Pennsylvania, only it's spelled G-A-N-S. It's located in the far southwestern corner of the state. Gans is almost due south of Pittsburgh and just a few miles from the West Virginia state line. Gans is a small unincorporated community in Fayetteville County. It does have a post office with a zip code. Now, if you're needing the post office in Gans, it's located inside Birchanal's General Store. Interestingly, there is also a Keir, Pennsylvania in this area. Keir is located about 32 miles north of Gans. Both Keir and Gans are located more than 350 miles west of the office building at Holmdel. So those are different places? Uh Uh-huh. These scenes are actually being shot on the streets of the city of Beacon, New York. The area of Beacon was established as a community by Europeans going all the way back to 1709. Beacon got its name from the fires set up high on the Fishkill Mountains to alert the Continental Army about British troop movements during the American Revolution. Beacon is a town of just over 13,000, located in the southwest corner of Dutchess County. It's about 60 miles north of New York City and about 90 miles south of Albany. Don't miss the details as they walk down the street. A sign behind them says, We Sell Severance Compatible Attire. This would be clothing without code or symbols. If you consider all the words that appear somewhere in clothes, this makes sense. Severance-compatible attire would mean no tags with care instructions, sizes, company names, or logos would be hidden anywhere in the clothes. The fact a company would have a sign like this indicates there must be a lot of severed workers running around out there. Jobs with specialized clothing like uniforms or nurses' scrubs are usually sold at specialized stores. You don't normally see signs for specialized work clothing just out on the street. We discover not all of Cure is a company town.
0: So do you live in Lumen housing?
1: You could sound like dorms. (laughs) Mark admits he lives in Baird Creek, and yes, they happen to be subsidized by the company where he works. The background stores we see as they walk are all actual Beacon storefronts. The store names were changed digitally for the show. The couple comes up on a pair of young people handing out flyers. Mark seems to be familiar with them.
0: Oh, children's brain nice. A up to that.
1: Oh. Mark starts to walk towards the bear. We can hear they're talking about severed workers to people walking by.
0: The Whole Mind Collective, they're great.
1: His body language is saying maybe they really aren't so great. Hammered outy. Mark walks to a courtyard in front of a building marked the Hall of Records. A statue that must be Keir Egan stands in front of the hall. It looks like he's carrying either a toolbox or a medical bag. This brick building is real, but where we see Hall of Records, this area actually says Beacon Building in a very similar font. It's located on Main Street in downtown Beacon. The words over the door have been changed digitally. The statue has also been added digitally to the courtyard. Refiners, this is Alan S. calling from the future. Full disclosure, I was guessing about the Keir statue being a digital creation. I figured something that big had to be created in a computer. Then I talked to Mark Geller, you know, Keir Egan himself. Mark posed for this statue, and he said it is very, very real. He's seen it in person. With the base, he said it's nearly 30 feet high. So, building sign, definitely CGI. Statue of Keir, The real thing. Okay, now, go back to the past. The activist kids in the courtyard are handing out a single sheet flyer. You folks have a moment for children's brain health? Mark says they do, quite sarcastically. As he's handed the one sheet, we get a glimpse of the words End Severance across the top with an exclamation point. The image is a masked figure with glowing red eyes and a line dividing its head in half. The text of the sheet is graphic. It reads, severance robs the worker of moral self-governance. One may spend one's day hacking children to bits, but go home to one's own kids, none the wiser. A WMC logo for Whole Mind Collective is at the bottom of the sheet. The kid says mega corporations like Lumen are forcing legalized severance on our state.
0: That's what they're lobbying for.
1: So, possibly more corporations other than Lumen also have severance? The procedure seems like something proprietary found only at Lumen. Maybe they're licensing it out to other companies. If Apple could sever the team developing the new iPhone, I'm sure they'd do it in a minute. No more press leaks about new features or reports about design failures. The kid says they're trying to get a measure on the ballot against severance. Mark picks up on the line, forcing it on our state. They're forcing it now? Mark is drunk, and he seems to be itching for a fight. He's really baiting the kid. What about the self-mutilating types
0: who do it willingly? I mean, I heard that some of them are so deluded, they don't even know they're victims.
1: Mark's date is picking up on the tension and giving him a look.
0: I also heard that if you're severed, you go to two separate hells
1: is that true the kid reacts to mark's sarcasm he asks if mark wants to benefit off forced labor this sets mark off hey man that's up to you forced labor Fucking
0: really? Yeah. Forced labor. Really? Okay. The
1: kid is arguing like a young righteous activist. Mark starts slamming his age. Uh, what? What are you? Twelve? Are you twelve years old? Are you even in high school yet? Mark realizes he's making things uncomfortable for his date. He grabs her arm and they move along. Although no one has said it in the previous scenes, the young lady Mark is dating has the character name Alexa. She's being played by actress Nikki M. James. Nikki is also a veteran of the stage. She originated the role of Nabalungi in Book of Mormon. It won her a Tony. Nikki was born in Summit, New Jersey in June of 1981. She has 32 performance credits on her IMDb profile, starting with a two-episode recurring character on Third Watch in 2001. She had a six-episode arc on The Good Wife, and she was a series regular on an interesting political sci-fi thriller called Braindead from 2016. A lot of Nikki's TV appearances are on shows that shoot on the East Coast. She's been on two different flavors of Law & Order. This is so Nikki can stay close to Broadway. She will appear on four episodes of Severance in Season 1, and no word if she'll be returning for Season 2. We cut to Mark's apartment where he's drinking a beer alone. He picks up the red envelope from Petey. His thoughts are interrupted by a knock at the door. He opens it for Mrs. Selvig, who's carrying a plate of cookies.
0: Peace offering.
1: Mark says he didn't know they were fighting.
0: I just keep thinking about those damn bins.
1: Oh, it's because of the damn bins. The bins are the flimsiest of excuses for Selvig to keep intruding on Mark's life. Is she a spy? Or is Cobel just a really annoying neighbor as an Audi? Oh, well, that is so not necessary, but uh, very kind. Thank you. Mark takes the plate, and he's ready to go back into his apartment. Mrs. Selvig awkwardly stands in the doorway until Mark is forced to invite her in. He says he has milk. Mrs. Selvig is a bit of a busybody. This is not her first time in Mark's apartment. She comments on the bulb still out in the hallway fixture.
0: Still waiting for that third bulb to revive itself?
1: Mrs. S. sits as Mark tells her about the date with the doula, or midwife. It was set up by his sister. Mark samples the cookies. She says she's been experimenting with chamomile. These are magic. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mrs. Selvig whips into a strange story about her late husband. She says she's got the plans for their house in heaven in her purse. It's all very weird. The scene fades, thankfully, just as she seems ready to pull out those heavenly houseplants. There's a cut to a long shot of Mark's front door. Time has passed, and Mrs. S. is finally leaving.
0: Well, come by the shop, okay? I'll give you a mugwort bath bomb. That'll make you sleep like a rag
1: doll. I'll try to get down there. Mrs. Selvig is very concerned about Mark's ability to sleep. She told that eight hours to bless a sleeping child story last episode. Now it's a mugwort bath bomb. And what shop exactly? How is Cobell running things down on the severed floor while Selvig is running some kind of a bath salts and essential oil shop as an Audi? Could this be another cloned Milchik situation? Is this robot Selvig with the Eastern Block accent option? Good night, Mrs. Selvig. Mrs. Selvig's mention of the burnt-out light spurs Mark to action. After she finally leaves, he goes down into the basement looking for bulbs. The basement is unfinished and stacked with a few crates and shelves. Mark finds some bulbs, but not the one he needs. He keeps digging and pulls down a plastic storage crate. On the lid, it's marked Gemma's Crafts. Gemma, of course, is the name of Mark's deceased wife. In an original draft, her name was given as Lynn in honor of Dan Erickson's mother. No explanation as to why it was changed to Gemma. Inside the box, Mark finds a candle. It's two-toned. The top half is red and the bottom is green, so maybe it's a Christmas candle, but it does also go right along with the color scheme of severance. There's a cut to later that night. The red and blue fish are still swimming in their empty tank. Mark is passed out in front of the TV. This seems to be a nightly ritual, when he's home, that is. He really could use that mugwort bath bomb. The next morning, it's overcast and pouring rain. Mark hurries to his car, ready to cross the bridge to work. And he sits for a few moments. He finds the end severance flyer in his pocket and considers it. He makes a decision. Mark runs back into his house. We hear a phone call as we see Mark's car on the road.
0: Milchick,
1: Mark is calling in sick while driving. He's claiming a stomach issue, saying he should be back tomorrow. Milchik sounds concerned. He asks how serious it is. I
0: know your inny will be sad to have missed the day.
1: Mark's car winds along a road under a tall rail trestle. This is actually the Rondeau Train Trestle, also called the Kingston Trestle. It's a CSX railroad bridge. The bridge crosses Rondeau Creek in Ulster County, New York. The Kingston Trestle was built in 1903. The total span of the trestle is 1,232 feet.
0: You feel better, okay, Mr. Scout?
1: There's a cutaway from Mark driving to a close-up of a coffee pot in mid-drip. We're back on the severed floor in the kitchenette. Dylan is waiting on the pot of coffee as Irv comes up behind him. As usual, Irv is irked where's mark irv says mark should be coming down first now since he's chief irv is worried you don't think he's probably sick they wouldn't bounce him and pd the same week irv comments it's end of the quarter and he doesn't want to be department chief wow a lot of confidence for a man who once got disciplined for dozing oh this is new disciplined for dozing dozing is a very bad thing on the severed floor it might explain the general lumen fixation with coffee Rwandan coffee, no less, and Mrs. Selvig's ongoing concerns about Mark's sleeping habits. The dozing comment is a low blow. Dylan realizes he's crossed a line and haltingly apologizes to Irv. As he's leaving the kitchen, Irv calls after him.
0: I can't help that I was hired older
1: than you. Helly comes walking into the MDR space as Dylan is headed to his workstation. This never stops, huh? Which sounds like office small talk you might find anywhere, but on the severed floor, this line has ominous overtones. Helly's outfit is back to red hair over a blue sweater, this time with a neutral gray skirt. Where's Mark? Dylan tells her he's either sick or fired, but probably sick. Helly's worried he might have been canned because of her note thing. Dylan explains Mark paid for the note thing. He did a stint in the break room yesterday. Helly doesn't know what this means exactly, but you can tell from her expression she thinks maybe it's concerning. She eyes Dylan as they both sink into their cubicles. He said he was ill.
0: Did he sound ill?
1: This transitions us into Cobell's office. Milchick and Grainer are sitting in front of Cobell's desk. They're discussing Mark's sick call. Cobell is certainly the alpha in this trio. She wants to know if he sounded ill. I don't know. He said it was abdominal. Grainer says he doesn't like the timing. Cobell sighs heavily. Funny timing. We catch back up with Mark in his car just as he's found 499 Half Loop Road. He is pulling into what looks like an abandoned greenhouse. In the real world, this is actually an abandoned greenhouse. This was the Sprain Brook Nursery and Garden Center located at 448 Underhill Road in Scarsdale, New York. Sprain Brook Nursery has been permanently closed since December of 2012. In true Facebook fashion, the nursery does still have an accessible Facebook page as of 2022. Their last post was 10 years ago on the final weekend of the going-out-of-business sale. Finding a page like that is a little like visiting a digital ghost town. It's hazy and overcast as Mark parks. The rain has stopped but doesn't look far off. Mark slowly gets out of his car, looking around. Mark's visit to the greenhouse is being intercut with scenes from the severed floor. We hear Dylan once again bragging about his awards.
0: The erasers are mostly decorative, since we don't have pencils.
1: Dylan warns the finger traps are fun, but you have to be careful. He says the prizes are more about what they represent, how far you got in the file. Hell, asks why they don't always finish the files. It only really keeps along. The discussion between Helly and Dylan drones on. Irv is at his workstation refining away, but he seems to be drifting. His eyes close. Dylan throws out an interesting statistic. Refiners only finish one in five files before they disappear. Dylan and Helly's voices blur into the swelling music. Irv's head is isolated on the zoom in isolating the heads of severed workers in scenes seems to be a theme of director stillers there is a cut to herb's point of view the music is becoming more ominous we see herb's workstation with numbers churning by on the screen a tilt up reveals the black goo seeping over the wall of herb's cubicle this is unexpected Herb's dozing again, and we are in his dream. What we're seeing is Herb's paint. As mentioned, we're going to find out later in the season, Herb's Audi is a painter. His favorite subject involves a lot of black. I have a theory about dozing, coffee, getting your sleep as an Audi, and Herb's paint. I think it's a flaw in the severance chip. They've said several times the severance chip splits your conscious memories. This would indicate the severance chip can't reach subconscious thought. When we sleep, dreams are being served up by our subconscious. Our brain uses conscious memories to create subconscious dreams as a way to work through our day. If in any sleeps we can see through ERV's POV, they do also dream. The paint would indicate dreaming can cause an innie to access outie memories. I think this is why innies are constantly fed coffee and get disciplined for dozing. Lumen doesn't want innies to access visions of their outie selves through their dreams. This doesn't seem to be the case going the other way. Outies don't seem to be able to access visions of their innie selves through their dreams, This might be because all conscious memories created by the Any can be contained by the severance chip. Those memories must never make it to the subconscious. The fear of what he's seeing leaves Irv motionless. He watches frozen as the paint drips down his wall, over his workstation, onto his keyboard. He is watching in silent terror until it touches his hand. Irv quickly pushes back from his workstation. Dylan jumps up to look over the cubicle divider. Irv Irv looks again at his keyboard. This time, it's clean. No ooze, nothing to be afraid of. He haltingly apologizes. Milchik has materialized at the MDR door. Irving. There's a cut back to the nursery. Mark's walking between the abandoned greenhouses. They're adding a blue filter to these outside shots, but even without it, these would be some cold and dreary scenes. The wind is howling. Mark enters one of the destroyed greenhouses. it has been overrun by plants, now dead. Things are hanging from the broken panes in the ceiling. Mark turns, and there's Petey, standing amidst the destroyed remnants of the greenhouse. He looks cold and sad. Quick cut, back to the severed floor. Looking over Irv's shoulder, we're following Milchik down a hallway.
0: We'll deduct the time you spent dozing from your Audi's paycheck.
1: Probably more devastating for Irv, Milchik says this incident will destroy he and Cobell's trust in Irv. One of the worst things you can tell a kid is mom and dad don't trust them anymore. Milchik says no one wants to throw Irv in the break room, so they're going to try a wellness visit with Ms. Casey and go from there. They arrive at a door with the tiny sign, Wellness, next to it. Milchik opens the door and ushers Irv in. Milchik doesn't enter. He pulls the door shut behind Irv. The reverse angle reveals two tiny signs, one on each side of the inner door of the Wellness waiting area. One sign says, let not weakness live in your veins. The other says to tame thy tempers. No surprise, both quotes are attributed to Keir Egan. Herb size, waiting. Hmm. There's a cut to a workstation screen. The file name in the corner is Sienna, so this would be the file Mark opened for Helly yesterday. It's showing 0% complete. Helly is zooming in and scrolling around the numbers with a bored expression on her face. Nothing scary yet. Helly isn't taking any of this seriously.
0: Oh God, a four.
1: Dylan is still feverishly refining. He's not happy with Helly's attitude. It's the only thing that could possibly offend Dylan. Somebody slamming the work. I told you, you'll understand when you see it, so just be patient. Helly asks one of the big questions we have as viewers. What are these numbers? What are we cleaning anyway? It's not like Dylan hasn't given it some thought. My theory? The C. He thinks Audis severing their brains is an indicator the outside world has gotten pretty bad. Humanity has decided to move to the seas, but before they can move, they need somebody to get rid of the eels. In Dylan's scenario, refiners are getting rid of the dreaded sea eels. This is the leading theory. Now, Irv thinks we're cutting swear words out of movies. This is interesting. Irv's theory would indicate innies have awareness of movies as entertainment. What the refiners may actually be doing was touched on in the Lexington letter. The writer of the letter says her Annie was very excited about finishing a file. Her Annie gave the exact time the file was completed. The Audi said about two minutes after the file completion time, the truck of a Lumen competitor exploded in New York. She happened to see the story on the news. Could the two be related Is Lumen somehow unleashing terrorist attacks on their competitors through the work of the severed employees? Whatever the numbers mean, we have the sense they are much more sinister than dirty words in movies. This is the
0: leading theory.
1: The rapid cuts continue. There's a cut back to the nursery where we are looking at Mark's face in an up angle. He's asking the same questions Helly is asking. But what is it? Like, wh- what are we actually working on down there? Petey says he doesn't know. He thought getting unsevered would reveal the nature of the work, but he says they keep the departments separated. Even if you know part of the picture, they don't let anyone get the whole thing. In the handbook, refiners are warned to not visit other departments. They claim it's to prevent the spread of germs and disease. Scaring innies with sickness seems to be a pretty effective tool. Petey has been reintegrated for two weeks. He says in that time he's been trying to map out the severed floor. We see a large hand-drawn map sitting there in the nursery. This isn't his only attempt at mapping out the floor. I had the original for you when I left. Petey doubles over and grabs his head in pain. <laughs> Petey claims he's experiencing reintegration sickness. Never heard of that one.
0: Because I'm the first dipshit that's ever had it.
1: Petey also tells Mark the cold living conditions aren't helping anything, but he can't go home because they're watching his house. Mark asks, what's so bad about what's happening down there? Petey says there's this room where they go when they've done something wrong. He's talking about the break room, but it's like he can't even say the words. Instead, he produces a mini-cassette player. Somehow, he's gotten audio of Mark reciting a statement of apology.
0: Forgive me for the harm I have caused this world. And may atone for my actions, but me.
1: No what we're hearing is called the compunction statement. This is the first time we've heard it as an audience. It's Mark's voice on the recorder repeating the words back to Milchik. Milchik makes him repeat them again.
0: I'm afraid you're not sorry.
1: Mark's voice sounds strained and pleading. The fuck is that? That's the break room. We got back to Irv, now seated on a green sofa in the waiting area for wellness. Get a look at the seatbacks as Irv stands. These seats were specifically designed to look and feel very uncomfortable. The seatbacks are at a straight-up 90 degrees. This was intended by the producers and the set designer. The message, there's no way you're going to get comfortable here. A wide shot of the room reveals four of those uncomfortable couches along the walls. Two doors are at the end of the room. A few plants are in the corners. The only thing on the walls of the wellness waiting area is a large picture. It's very dark and seems to have been painted in a dramatic Middle Ages style. As Irv pauses to consider the picture, we get some close-ups. To the left of the picture is a man with a salt-and-pepper beard wielding a cat-of-nine tails. Even though we're only in the second episode, it's pretty obvious this is Keir Egan. Another close-up reveals the four figures he is whipping. There is a ram, or more likely a goat, with a hoof raised in protest. Behind the goat is a person in a classic court jester costume. Above and behind the goat is a young woman who appears to be dressed in white, possibly a bridal veil. Behind the young woman and at the highest point in the group is a very old woman also wearing a white veil. This is a painting of Keir Egan taming the tempers we mentioned in the last episode. His whip, A Cat of Nine Tails, represents the power of the nine virtues or principles of Lumen. The four figures represent the four tempers which must be tamed. The jester is most likely Frolic. The bride could also be frolic because of the implication of sex on the wedding night, but she's also possibly woe. I'm picking the goat for malice, which leaves the old woman as dread. During Dylan's waffle party, we will see living representations of these same figures. We'll address this topic again when we get there. As Irv contemplates the painting, one of the doors opens. The door on the left is marked Enter. The door on the right is Exit. A man is coming through the exit door wearing a blue lab coat. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. I didn't think anybody was out here. This man is also wearing a water droplet key card, but his key card is green instead of the blue we've seen on the folks from MDR. He apologizes, saying he didn't think anyone was out here. This is Bert, and no, you're not seeing things. Bert is being played by incredible character actor Christopher Walken. Bert and Irving are going to start a very deep and emotional relationship in this season. When talking to John Turturro about who he would be comfortable with in the part of Bert, he said his good friend and stellar actor Chris Walken would be perfect. Getting Christopher Walken seemed like a tall order, but when you have Ben Stiller. John Taturo and Apple behind your request? Suddenly you get an A-list name like Christopher Walken on the set of your TV show. Christopher Walken was born in Queens in 1943. He has 140 acting credits on his IMDb profile, mostly appearing in movies. That number includes Dune Part 2, which is currently filming and set for a 2023 release. If you've ever seen him in anything, you remember him. Walken's first TV credit was at age 10 on the wonderful John Acton series in 1953. He was credited then as Ronnie Walken. His 1978 role in The Deer Hunter won him an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor.
0: I don't think about one shot that much anymore, Mike. You have to think about one shot. One shot is what it's all about. Deer has to be taken with one shot. I try to tell people that. They don't listen. You really think about getting in? Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm thinking about the theater. Mm. Going down. I like the trees, you know? I like the way the, the trees are and the mountains the different.
1: Bert has just finished a wellness session. He apologizes not knowing Irv was waiting. Irv says he was admiring the art while he waited. That piece... Hung in the perpetuity wing for many years. Irv knows this and admits it broke his heart when it was taken down. Bert thinks it's better here because it's calming. I'm not sure how watching four figures get whipped is calming, but this is the severed floor. Irv introduces himself. Bert says he's the head of optics and design, or O&D. He claims it's a two-person department, so barely a department. Irv gives O&D credit for the pictures. We don't paint them. We do hang them. Irv tells Bert how much he loved it when they did the Ambrose cycle in the team building space. He'd never seen it before. Not sure what the cycle might be, but this is a reference to the second CEO of Lumen, Ambrose Egan. Ambrose took over from Kier. He was the shortest serving CEO of the company, only in charge for two years from 1939 until 1941. Bert is impressed with Herb's knowledge of art. He gives us a fantastic Christopher Walken line reading. It's rare to meet a sophisticated. Bert says most people only give a thought to O&D when the new handbook totes come out. They both have a good laugh at this. Irv says he does love those too. Bert delivers a bombshell about the totes. There's new ones coming next month. Best design yet, in my view. Irv is bowled over by this. Oh, wow. He says it's all he'll be thinking about until then. A door opens. Irving? There's a cut to a stunning and exotic-looking woman standing in the enter doorway. She has jet-black hair and is wearing a green dress. This is Ms. Casey, the head of wellness. Ms. Casey is being played by Deachan Lockman. Deechan was born in February of 1982 in Kathmandu, Nepal. She's the daughter of a Tibetan mother and an Australian father. After dropping out of university in Australia, Deechan took up acting. She had a couple of movie parts in 2005 and 2006. She also got a recurring role on the Australian Soap Neighbors in 2005. She appeared on 103 episodes over the course of 14 months. Deechan has had numerous recurring roles on TV series, including memorable stints on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Altered Carbon, and Animal Kingdom. She also appears in the new Jurassic World movie, Dominion. Irving. Ms. Casey is a quiet and calming presence with no visible emotion. We find out she's identified as a part-time innie, which most likely means she does not leave Lumen. This is further supported by her lack of a key card. Ms. Casey is never seen carrying the key card, which would grant her access to the surface elevator. Bird and Irv share a nod before Irv heads in for his appointment. In the wellness room, Ms. Casey is able to adjust bird sounds and ambient music. Large circles in the ceiling seem to be delivering sunlight to the room. More than likely, it simulated sunlight, since the severed floor seems to be quite a ways below ground. There's a large tree, or at least some tree branches, arranged along the far wall. A Lumen brand mister is delivering what must be calming scents to the room. Ms. Casey takes a deep breath before she begins.
0: All right, Irving. What I'd like to do is share with you some facts about your Audi. Because your Audi is an exemplary person, these facts should be very pleasing.
1: There is a close-up of a blue sheet of paper being taken out of a tray. At the top, it says Irving B. Under that, it says the Wellness Center Patient Audi Facts. About 15 facts seem to be listed on the sheet. Ms. Casey gives Irving some additional and kind of weird instructions. She says she is going to read these facts to Irv.
0: Just relax your body and be open to the facts. Try to enjoy each equally.
1: Also, he shouldn't share these facts about his Audi with anyone outside this room. She reads slowly in the same calming voice.
0: Your Audi is generous. Your Audi is fond of music and owns many records.
1: The list continues. The things being attributed to Irv's Audi are pretty generic and could be said about a lot of people.
0: Your Audi is strong and helps someone lift a heavy object.
1: Irv is visibly but quietly enjoying these facts about his Audi until Miss Casey gets to. Your Audi is splendid
0: and can swim gracefully and well.
1: Irv chuckles upon hearing this fact about himself or uh, about his Audi. Miss Casey pauses. Irv is showing far too much appreciation for his swimming.
0: Please try to enjoy each fact equally and not show preference for any over the others.
1: She then tells Irv. That's 10 points off. You have 90 points remaining. This is a surprise to Irv. He wasn't aware he was being scored. Points? Please don't speak. As Ms. Casey resumes the list, there is a close-up on a piece of driftwood sitting on the wellness room table. The close-up reveals a tiny spy camera pointed at Irv. There's a cut to a video screen showing the POV of the camera. In the corner of the screen is the notation CAM-S-522. If S is the severed floor, does this mean there are at least 521 other cameras somewhere on the floor watching the innies? We know the interview room had several cameras in it, and Cobell had access to them from her desk. We aren't shown who's watching this one, but cameras everywhere would explain how Milchik was able to appear so quickly at the MDR door when Irv was dozing. The list continues.
0: Your Audi has no fear of muggers or knaves.
1: The vocabulary of the severed floor can be odd sometimes. We don't normally fear knaves in our day-to-day existence, but annies seem to be concerned about knaves. What's a knave? Well, it's a Middle English term. Starting in about the 12th century, it was used to mean a tricky and deceitful fellow. Prior to that, it meant a male servant, usually a boy. Knave is still used as a part of modern speech to indicate tricky and deceitful, but you don't really hear it all that often. Ms. Casey then delivers a line that will become a callback in much later episodes.
0: Your Audi likes the sound of radar.
1: Irv has a military background. It appears he was a radar operator, so he may enjoy the actual beep-beep sound of radar. Because of Irv's background, he has also named his Audi dog Radar. We will get a good look at his name tag later. This wellness fact could be referencing Irv's dog Radar rather than actual Radar. Either way, this is a very true statement uniquely about Irv, many of the Audi facts sound so generic they could be applied to almost anyone's Audi.
0: Your Audi is skilled at kissing
1: and lovemaking. Irv can't contain himself when he hears this one.
0: Oh. I'm sorry. Please don't respond to any specific fact. That's 10 points off. I was just. Please don't speak further, or all remaining points will be deducted and the wellness session will end.
1: Herb sits silently, not wanting to lose his remaining points. There's a cut to a small clear glass jar and a sign that says limit two tokens per person per day. A hand is opening the jar lid. It's Dylan who's taking a token. We're back in the MDR area and we're visiting vending. Dylan puts the token in the brushed steel vending machine. Close up to the items available for sale. Each tasty selection is packaged in a Lumen brand cardboard pouch. Lumen is on the top flap and on the front of the pouch. Under the Lumen logo is the name of the item in the pouch, then a descriptive line or word about the item. We get to see two rows of items in the machine. The C-Row contains edamame, described as dry roasted in C1. C2 is raisins, shriveled. C3 is peanuts, roasted and salted, then C4, beets. The beets have been dried and sliced. Dylan can't decide. He checks out the D-row. D1 contains blueberries, dried. D2 is ginseng, cubed. D3 holds sunflower seeds with no descriptor. D4 is obscured by the metal delivery coil, but it might be meat, smoked and salted. Dylan finally goes with C2, the shriveled raisins. The vending machine points up an interesting detail provided by set decorator Andrew Baseman. He said in an interview they very purposefully arranged things in fours, especially in the MDR area, four items per row and the vending machine is a great example. The groupings of four were supposed to be reflective of the four refiners. Helly he comes into the vending room as Dylan is retrieving his raisins. She's still trying to beat the code detectors. She wants to know if they're also in the stairwell. Jesus, stairwells too, why? Helly thinks maybe the reason none of the resignation requests are accepted is because they aren't being received. Dylan tells her she has to let it go. Helly wants to know how good the detectors are. She then says something I don't think she would have any way of knowing about as an innie
0: what if you wrote the letters funky like one of those robot tests
1: sure we've all run across those robot tests with weirdly written letters you have to decipher to prove you aren't a bot messing with a website how would heli's innie know anything about robot tests you have to be in the real world to experience them the only computer she's ever seen is the lumen workstation and they certainly aren't attached to the internet it's a throwaway line, but I really think Helly mentioning robot tests is a miss on the part of the Severance writers. Irv has returned from wellness. Hi, kids. What's the dinner? Helly yep. asks, how was wellness? Great. Very restorative. I met the O&D department head. Dylan pops up from his chair. He says he knows Bert and does not like him. I've met that guy. He's a fuck. He asks Irv if he told Bert where they are. While Dylan and Irv argue about whether Bert's a threat, we cut to Helly's monitor. She's still scrolling numbers, although her heart is not into this refiner thing. As the boys keep arguing, Helly gets a weird look on her face.
0: Guys? Lumen has been good to us, and it is feckless to
1: Irv and Dylan walk over behind Helly. She's pointing at what possibly is an offending zero on the screen. I don't have the same sensitivities as a refiner. Irv asks if she can see the perimeter. Helly says she does and works the trackball to lasso the offending number group. A bin opens and the numbers disappear into it. According to the orientation handbook, if a refiner grabs an incorrect set of numbers, they will get a warning they're wrong. These numbers go in without an alert. She seems to have done it correctly. Helly is breathless and looks a little haunted.
0: They were scary. The numbers were scary.
1: She is visibly shaken. I doubt Heli makes fun of the scary numbers going forward. They do seem to be truly scary. The
0: numbers were scary.
1: There's a cut to the street shot outside of Mark and Mrs. Selvig's homes. We saw this shot the first time when Mark was out fighting with the bins on Sunday night. After the establishing shot, we cut into Mrs. Selvig's home. She's looking out a window with her hair in braided pigtails. She's breathing heavily. A cut reveals she is looking into Mark's townhouse across the way. Nothing is visible through his windows. There's a cut to a close-up of a brown leather couch. Mark's voice can be heard as he is uncovering the couch. Here's the couch. i find you a sleeping bag. Petey is standing in Mark's basement. Mark tells him he can use the shower. What are you trying to say? <laughs> Petey thanks him. Mark says he figures his work self would be pissed if he left Petey to live in the cold greenhouse. Mark goes to find a sleeping bag. Petey steps into the bathroom. He looks disoriented. You okay in there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. Petey is anything but good. He pulls out a flip phone that's buzzing with a call. Before he can answer it, he's convulsing over the sink. He's bleeding a lot from his nose. The phone keeps buzzing as Petey is clutching his head in huge amounts of pain. Petey eventually gets into the shower, letting the water run over his face. Something is short-circuiting in his brain. This recombination procedure may not have worked as well as hoped. Petey has a vision of his work self in a suit standing at the sink. and the reflection of the mirror is his recombined self in the shower behind his work self. Ben Stiller said this was a very practical effect. It did take some time to complete because they had to shoot scenes both in the townhome and on the severed floor. In order to get the crossover scenes, they didn't use CGI. They actually created a section of Mark's bathroom and took it onto the severed floor sets to use in these shots. As his work self turns to see his shower self, he clutches his head in immense pain and knocks him off his feet. Petey winds up sitting on the floor of the shower. Mark asks if he's okay as Daydreamin' Blue from I Monster begins to play.
0: Daydream, I fell asleep amid the flowers For a couple of hours On a beautiful day Daydream, I dream of you amid the flowers For a couple of hours
1: such a beautiful day iMonster is a British electronic music duo formed in 1997. This was their first single, released in 2001. This is not the first time Daydream and Blue has appeared in a TV show. It was also in the third episode of the BBC drama Hustle. It peaked at number 20 on the UK singles chart in June of 2001. Good news, Macro Data Refiners. This file is at 100%. You can close down your workstation for the day. But before you leave, remember these facts about your Audi. Your Audi is an excellent pickleball player. Your Audi enjoys hearing the laughter of small children. Your Audi will sometimes buy an entire dozen of Krispy Kreme donuts and eat them all alone. Please try to appreciate each of these facts about your Audi equally. The next time we gather, we'll be visiting the wing of perpetuity. For now, you may leave by the elevator, but please make sure to stagger your exits.
0: You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written... Produced and hosted by Alan
1: Stare. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavour Content, or Apple TV Plus. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational
0: purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo, and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavour Content, Apple TV Plus, or their respective copyright holders.
1: Please make sure to leave a five star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.